Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Every Thursday for the last two and a half years, thousands of listeners have heard Paige and I tell our origin story. Maybe some of you can repeat it word for word, but for those of you who skipped the introduction or who are new here, we met on Bumble BFF and the rest was history. Unfortunately, not everyone is so lucky when it comes to meeting strangers off the internet. One of the most recent examples of this happened two months ago on December 12th, 2021 in New England's historic seaport city of Bridgeport, Connecticut. The incident report filed by the local police department reads like the first chapter of a crime novel. An officer responds to a 911 call for an unresponsive woman. A white man answers the door and tells the officer that he awoke to find his bumble date, a black woman not breathing with blood coming from her nose. When asked for the woman's name, the date simply says, Lauren, clarifying that he's uncertain of her last name except that her Instagram profile lists it as Smith. A problematic investigation followed. Officials later ruled Lauren's death accidental, albeit tragic, and attempted to close the case without further investigation. But her friends, family, community, and people throughout the U.S. demanded another look. In fact, a huge number of Murder Diaries listeners requested this case. And I'm so, so grateful each and every one of you did. Things aren't adding up. Lauren didn't do drugs. So how did she end up with fentanyl, among other things, in her system? If she willingly took it, then where or whom did she get it from? And should the supplier be held accountable for Lauren's death? To put it simply, there are still too many questions without answers for this case to be put to bed. This isn't a novel or an episode of CSI. This is real life. And until all leads have been exhausted, let's keep sharing her name. This is the story of Lauren Quinique Smith-Fields. Lauren was born on January 23, 1998 to Chantel Fields and Everett Smith. She was the younger sister to three brothers, Kyle, Tavar, and Lakeem, who described her as bright, bubbly, kind-hearted, and funny. She loved traveling, working out at LA Fitness, and sipping on matcha tea. Lauren ran track at Stanford High School, where she graduated from in 2016, and went on to take classes at Norwalk Community College. 
Some sources say she was studying cosmetology and ultimately wanted to pursue a career in physical therapy. In the meantime, though, she owned her own business as an eyebrow specialist and turned her active social media presence into another avenue to make money. She frequently engaged with her 18,000 Instagram followers and almost 12,000 TikTok followers as she posted dance videos and chatted about beauty and fashion. This feels like the understatement of the year, but Lauren was truly stunning. And she really did know how to dress to impress. One quick look at her Instagram, and it's really clear why she had so many followers. She had style. On top of that, she also shared snapshots of her extensive travels on Instagram. We're talking the Dominican Republic, Rome, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, London, and Jamaica, just to name a few. There was a lot to take in when looking at Lauren's online presence. That brings us to December 8th, 2021. Lauren matches with 37-year-old design engineer Matthew on Bumble. Now, before I get any further into the story, I need to explain a couple of things. Number one, there are three different versions of Bumble, dating, BFF, and networking. Paige and I, we met on Bumble BFF, the version that introduces you to potential friends. Lauren and Matthew met on the version of Bumble for dating. The matching process is similar. You swipe on potential matches, but the motivations are different. Number two, as of this recording, today's Friday, February 18th, Matthew has not been named by police as a suspect in relation to Lauren's death. As such, he is innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. And we need to remember that throughout this episode. About half of the sources I used for my research redact his name while the other half of the resources chose to print it. So why am I choosing to use his name? Well, whether he's guilty or not, he's still part of Lauren's story. He was the last person to see her alive and he's the one who called 911. So I felt like, of course, he has to be in the story. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, though. Back to December 8th. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospa's hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. The two chat on Bumble, then continue the conversation on Instagram. Turns out Lauren and Matthew have a mutual friend. They stay in contact with each other off and on for the next three days. Then on December 11th, 2021, Lauren invites Matthew over to her apartment for a date. This would be their first in-person meeting. He readily accepts and the two plan to get together around 9.30 that night. According to Matthew, Lauren asks him for $40 to get her nails done and for him to bring a bottle of tequila for them to share. Matthew arrives at Lauren's Plymouth Street apartment at 9.30 on the dot. He calls her twice via Instagram, but she doesn't answer. And this is because they never exchanged phone numbers. This was his only way of getting a hold of her. He waits for a few minutes, a 450 milliliter bottle of Casamigos tequila in hand before he leaves thinking she's changed her mind and has stood him up. Lauren returns his calls a few minutes later and she's apologetic. She didn't answer the calls because she was finishing up her makeup. 
look, I get it. I probably would have done the same thing. Matthew and the Casamigos returned to Lauren's apartment eager to finally meet her. Because of how things turn out, we only have Matthew's side of the story that he told police. So please, please keep that in mind when listening to the evening's events. That's not to say he did or didn't lie about anything, but simply to highlight that memories aren't always perfect. We all know in the true crime community that while eyewitness accounts are an extremely important piece of the puzzle, they aren't always the most accurate. It's no secret. According to Matthew, things go well at first. Lauren and Matthew begin taking shots of tequila, but they go a little too fast and Lauren ends up getting sick early in the evening. She vomits in the restroom and is super embarrassed and apologizes profusely afterward. They slow down their drinking, but don't stop completely. Instead, they drink the tequila with mixers while playing games, nibbling on some food, and eventually start a movie. Sometime during their movie, Matthew notices Lauren texting someone. She mentions that her brother is on his way to drop something off for her. A few minutes later, Lauren excuses herself to meet her brother outside, whom Matthew never sees. Lakeem, Lauren's brother, tells a different story, though. He insists that the last time he texted his sister was on December 4th, but he did call her on the night of Saturday, December 11th, the night that Matthew was with Lauren. Did Matthew misremember? Or did he purposefully lie? I'm not sure, but it's not the only thing that doesn't match up with what Lakeem says happened that night. According to Lakeem, Lauren had a basket of Lakeem's clothes that he went to pick up, and he made no mention of dropping anything off. Lakeem then told Rolling Stone magazine, quote, I didn't know that anybody was in there. She came out and she was out there for like 10, 15 minutes and she walked back into the house. She looked normal. She didn't look sick. She didn't look tired. She didn't look drunk, end quote. When Lauren returns to her apartment, she walks straight to the bathroom and stays in there for 10 to 15 minutes, at least according to Matthew, because we're back to his version of events that he later told police. Matthew thinks that the long bathroom break is odd. However, he doesn't say anything because Matthew and Lauren don't really know each other. This is their first hangout, remember? I don't know if it's me, but when I read the report, it felt as if Matthew was implying something with this comment. And really, Lauren could be doing anything in the bathroom. Maybe she got sick again. Maybe she wanted to fix her makeup. Maybe she actually had to use the restroom. But the fact remains that we don't know. So that's where we're going to leave it because it doesn't help anyone, especially Lauren, for us to speculate. Lauren finally exits the bathroom and the two continue watching the movie and simultaneously finish the bottle of tequila. It's now super late and Lauren's fallen asleep on the couch. Instead of waking her up, Matthew, who's this big muscular guy with a shaved head and scruff, picks up Lauren and carries her to her bed. He sets her down, gets in bed next to her, and falls asleep. I have a couple of feels about this, and I'm sure our listeners do too. The first thing that's sticking out to me is that these are two people who just met, and they have never slept in the same bed together. So to assume that this would be normal or sit right with somebody who didn't consent to sleeping in the same bed just doesn't sit right with me. And on top of that, was Lauren actually asleep or was she unconscious? So many questions. Hours pass. It's now the early morning hours of December 12th, 2021. 
Matthew wakes up at three o'clock in the morning to use the restroom. And that's when he notices that Lauren's snoring before getting back into bed and falling asleep. Three and a half hours later at 6.30 in the morning, Matthew wakes up to an actual nightmare. Lauren is unresponsive. In fact, she's not even breathing. She's on her right side and there's blood coming out of her right nostril, pooling onto the bed. Immediately, Matthew calls 911. Dispatch alerts authorities and medical personnel that they've received a call regarding a non-responsive female. Officer Carla Romelli arrives on scene at 33 Plymouth Street, which is Lauren's apartment. She's first on scene. It's now 6.34 in the morning. She knocks and Matthew answers the door. He's, quote, trembling and visibly shaken, unquote, according to Officer Romelli's case incident report. Matthew then directs the officer to the rear of the apartment to the main bedroom. There, Lauren now lays on her back on the floor. She didn't appear to be breathing and there was dried blood visible in and around her right nostril. Out of Matthew's frantic haze, he comes to and realizes he still has the 911 dispatcher on the other end of the phone in his hand. He had been doing chest compressions on Lauren, which is why she had been moved from the bed to the floor in the four minutes since he dialed 911. Matthew questions, should he continue chest compressions? The dispatcher tells Matthew to hang up and speak to the officer now that she's on scene. And he follows the instructions. Officer Romelli notifies Matthew that medics are en route and notes that she can even hear the sirens in the distance. The officer then asks Matthew for Lauren's name, and he's only able to give her first name because he's unsure of her last name. He explains that it's their first time meeting. He checks her Instagram, which is what we know to be their only real form of communication. He then tells the officer that her profile has Smith listed as her last name. Just then, medics arrive and begin performing life-saving measures on Lauren in an attempt to resuscitate her. At 6.49, 19 minutes after Matthew woke up, AMR medic number 3038 calls time of death. The medic further indicates that all signs suggest Lauren had passed at least an hour or more before medical personnel arrived. Funny, bubbly, hardworking Lauren Smithfields, who was a month shy of her January birthday, would never see the age of 24. The officer submits a request for the Detective Bureau Supervisor to be notified and then contacts the medical examiner around 7.04 a.m. Detectives and the medical examiner are now on their way. Meanwhile, the responding officer looks for anything that can confirm Lauren's name. As she looks through Lauren's apartment, she finds Lauren's passport, a stack of mail, and a MasterCard with Lauren's name on all of them, allowing her to correctly identify Lauren as Lauren Smith Fields. The officer also finds Lauren's cell phone on the couch, her apartment key, and $1,345 in cash. That's three one hundreds, fifty twenties, four tens, and one $5 bill. Detective Morales and Detective Cronin arrive at Lauren's apartment, followed by the medical examiner. As they conduct their initial investigations, the responding officer contacts Lauren's landlord, Hector Torres, who lives in the building but on the second floor. Hector doesn't know too much about Lauren except that she's lived in the apartment for almost a year and that she appears to have a close relationship with her mom who visits sometimes. When I was going through Lauren's TikTok videos for my own research, I watched a few that featured her mom, Chantel. The two really did seem to have a close relationship. Lauren liked to tease her mom, but really it was all in good fun. 
it's evident in my opinion that the mother-daughter duo really had an adoring relationship with one another. Back to the landlord, Hector. He has no way of contacting Lauren's family to let them know the tragic news. And he's at a loss for what to do. This isn't a duty a landlord thinks they'll ever have to perform. The detectives give Hector a card and instruct him to have the family call when or if he gets in touch with them. So he waits. All of Sunday, December 12th, and most of Monday, December 13th, Lauren's mom, Chantel, tries to get in touch with her. She calls and calls and texts the type of messages that no parent wants to go unanswered. Are you okay? Please let me know. But Chantel never receives a response. Not wanting to waste a single minute more, Chantel and Lakeem, Lauren's brother who saw her on Saturday night, drive to Lauren's Plymouth Street apartment on the evening of December 13th. Upon their arrival, Chantel and Lakeem are even more confused and worried when they find a note taped to Lauren's door. They've now got a pit in their stomachs as they read the landlord's note, quote, if you're looking for Lauren, call this number, unquote. Panicking, choking back tears, Chantel recalls dialing the number as she and Lakeem made their way back to the car. And it's there in the parking lot that they come face to face with Lauren's landlord, Hector. Chantel describes the moment. She says, quote, all I could do was just stand there like I was frozen. I could not believe what he was telling me, that my baby was gone, unquote. Hector then gives Lauren's mom and brother the number for one of the detectives who had been on the scene just the day before. Chantel has spoken about how the subsequent conversation went, saying, quote, my son talked to him, Detective Cronin, and he was asking him what happened. Cronin said that she met with a white guy on Bumble, but, quote, and this is like a quote within a quote, but don't worry about that. He's a really nice guy. That's the end of the quote within a quote and the actual quote. But the detective provided little information. He would not say whether Lauren's date, Matthew, who remained anonymous to the family at this point, had been taken in for questioning, or if he was considered a person of interest in the case. Lauren's family wasn't ready to give up that easily, though. They persist, contacting the detectives assigned to Lauren's case and demanding more information. Moreover, they want answers. Why weren't they notified about Lauren's death? Where is the Bumble date, the last known person to see her alive? What about all the potential evidence at Lauren's apartment? There was no police tape blocking it off when they arrived that Monday evening, so anybody could have gone in. On top of that, they have concerns with the incident report. Now, I know I just threw a lot of questions at you, so let's go through them. Why weren't they notified about Lauren's death? They were worried for two days before learning the devastating news from her landlord. One of the detectives allegedly told Lauren's brother, Tavar, that there was no reason for them to reach out to the family because they had found her passport and knew her identity. The detectives then allegedly told the family to stop calling and hung up on them on a subsequent phone call. This is absolutely ridiculous. Then there's the question of where is Lauren's bumble date, Matthew, who was the last known person to see her alive. Investigators said that Matthew cooperated with the police that day, so they saw no reason to follow up. As a result, Chantel's beside herself at this point. She's quoted as saying, my daughter's laying there dead and he gets to walk away. 
According to Rolling Stone, the family has several concerns with the incident report. What are these concerns and what's not adding up to the family? This is a two-part answer, so bear with me. Remember the texting, calling, and closed discrepancies between Lakeem and Matthew's stories at the top of the episode? Yeah. Well, there's that. Additionally, Lauren's mom, Chantel, also claims that Lauren had gotten her nails done earlier that week and that she wouldn't have needed to get them done again, which is why that bit of Matthew's story doesn't make sense to her. Why would Lauren ask Matthew, a complete stranger, for $40 to get her nails done when she didn't need to? Chantel also notes that Lauren's nails were, quote, still so intact, unquote, that they didn't need to be done for her funeral on December 26th. Perhaps the most important of all the family's questions and allegations is that police neglected to collect other pieces of potential evidence, which stems from their visit to Lauren's apartment three days after her funeral on December 29th. That's two weeks after her death. As the family cleaned out her apartment, they found a used condom with semen in the trash, lubrication, bloody sheets, and an unidentified pill. At the urging of Lauren's family, police visited the apartment and collected the condom with semen in it, the pill, the bloody sheets, the lubrication. The family's lawyer is quoted as saying, quote, after we forced them to collect it on December 29th, I called the state forensic lab and the woman who answered said the police department has not made a submission, unquote. And this is despite the police telling the family that the condom and pill were sent to a lab for analysis. Weeks passed after Lauren's death, and her family said they received few updates from the authorities. All of these factors have left Chantel and the rest of Lauren's family feeling as if their concerns are being overlooked, as if her daughter's investigation isn't important to authorities. Whether that was the investigator's intentions, that's how the Smithfields family feels. Lauren was someone's daughter, their sister. She was loved and she was a person above all. That's why her family decided to take action. On January 23rd, 2022, which would have been Lauren's 24th birthday, where she had plans to board a plane to Greece with her grandmother, her family instead marched from the police department to the city government center to demand answers from officials. They were joined by friends, community members, and activists as they sang happy birthday and released pink and red balloons into the sky. Following the march in Lauren's honor, the mayor, Joseph P. Gannon, made what appeared to be his first remarks about her case. He said, quote, death notifications should be done in a manner that illustrates dignity for the deceased and respect and compassion for the family, unquote. The following day, Monday, January 24th, 2022, the Connecticut Office of the Chief Medical Examiner released the report on Lauren's death. The examiner determined Lauren died of, quote, acute intoxication due to the combined effects of fentanyl, promethazine, hydroxine, and alcohol, unquote. Promethazine and hydroxine are antihistamines while fentanyl is a highly addictive and potentially deadly synthetic opioid that's a 100 times stronger than morphine. With this in mind, the medical examiner ruled her death accidental. The presence of drugs in Lauren's system spurred the department's Narcotics and Vice Division to open an investigation that will be assisted by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. 
because it's still so recent, it's unclear at this point if this investigation will result in charges. And the police have yet to identify anyone as a person of interest or suspect. And they also haven't charged anyone. So that's also something to keep in mind. Because this is such a recent case, we don't have the answers to those questions. Lauren's family challenged the medical examiner's conclusion that her death was an accident. The family's lawyer is quoted as saying the following, quote, I've never seen a medical examiner conclude a mixer of drugs as an accident without knowing who provided the drugs or how it was ingested. The lawyer continued, quote, this looks further like a manslaughter. Lauren didn't use drugs, unquote. Throughout the investigation into Lauren's mysterious death, Bumble has released several statements. They've even reached out to the family to show their support and offered to create a charity in her name. Bumble's CEO even released a statement saying, quote, we are deeply saddened by the news of Lauren Smithfield's death and have reached out directly to the family to offer support. We stand ready to provide appropriate assistance and information as requested by law enforcement. The safety of our community is our priority, and we will continue to work day in and day out to keep our members safe. We have a dedicated team who responds to requests for information from law enforcement authorities around the world, end quote. We love to hear it. Then on January 30th, the two Bridgeport police detectives who were involved in Lauren's case were put on administrative leave, and they're subject of a Bridgeport Police Office internal affairs investigation and possible disciplinary action for lack of sensitivity to the public and failure to follow police policy in the handling of Lauren's case. And most recently, Lauren's family filed a notice of claim with the city of Bridgeport, alerting them of their intent to sue the city in, quote, an effort to obtain due process, unquote. The notice alleges, quote, the police department has been racially insensitive to this family and has treated this family with no respect and has violated their civil rights. The report continues, we're suing the city of Bridgeport for failure to prosecute and failure to protect the family under the 14th Amendment, unquote. One of my resources perfectly sums up what Lauren's family is going through currently. They write, quote, while Lauren Smithfield's family is still mourning the loss of their daughter, they are also hoping that her death may not be in vain, but instead help the plight of missing and murdered women of color across the country, unquote. Lauren's mom, Chantel, expands on that idea. She says, quote, justice for me, for Lauren, is putting a bill in her name, making sure that the police departments do what they say they're going to do. I want justice for every Black woman, every young Black girl in this world to make sure a woman of color, any color, whose families are going to be involved with the police department that they have to act and know how to treat a family member who has lost a loved one, unquote. We certainly hope that by telling Lauren's story here on The Murder Diaries, that we can be a part of that as well. So say her name, Lauren Smith-Fields. That's where we'll leave this episode. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at The Murder Diaries pod on TikTok and Instagram at themurderdiariespodcast.com and themurderdiariespod at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. Your five stars mean everything. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.